One songwriter once wrote, I won't mention who because it gets redundant. I'm thinking and wondering, walking down the road. I once loved a woman, a child, I'm told. I gave her my heart, but she wanted my soul. But don't think twice, it's all right. One of my favorite uh, verses. So, so long, honey babe, where I'm bound, I can't tell. Goodbye is too good a word, so I'll just say, fare thee well. I ain't saying you treated me unkind. You could have done better, but I don't mind. You just kind of wasted my precious time, but don't think twice. It's all right. In this particular love song, or one that appears to be a love song, it starts with a confession of love, and it ends with a pretty harsh indictment uh, against someone who wasted the singer's time. Well, Isaiah chapter 5 is very much the same thing. It is pronounced to us at the very beginning that this is God's love song concerning His vineyard. Uh, but it is a strange love song, to say the least, in that it ends with a pretty crushing indictment and rejection of that which was beloved. Maybe you felt that as you read it. Uh, it starts so promising and ends fairly harshly. And so I want us to see it under three headings this morning. First, the fruitless vine, the fruitful vine, and then finally, the fruitful vineyard. Uh, it's not really a fruitless vine, but it's the only thing I could do to make the words all stick together so you know how that goes. You see in our, chapter, our text in Isaiah chapter 5 that the song is composed in such a way to lead the hearer into a story. The hearer doesn't know who the vintner is. He doesn't know who the vineyard is. Uh, he just knows that the one is beloved and the other is the lover. And so he hears this whole history of what this particular landowner did for his piece of land in order to grow a vineyard. He tells it in such a way that we begin to sympathize with this poor farmer. He's done an awful lot for this piece of land. And it's not until it's too late that the reveal comes and those who are hearing the song for the first time come under the judgment of the song. It really is, you'll notice, it starts out as a love song and ends up a uh, parabolic indictment against the nation that becomes for them their own condemnation after they have agreed with the songwriter that it's not the vintner's fault. It has everything to do with the vineyard or the vine. So notice, we have this owner of a vineyard who expends all sorts of financial and physical energies on his particular uh, uh, piece of land in order to plant a vineyard. We hear that he's cleared away the entire property of rocks and of weeds. Now notice he does so without use of a tractor or roundup. Uh, it is all by hand. He's prepared the soil so it has all the proper nutrients needed in order for him to produce the crop that he's intending. But of course, he also built what was necessary to protect that which would be planted. He builds a hedge around it, you know, to keep out critters of all sorts. If you've ever planted anything around here, you know how absolutely necessary this is. But he also puts a watchtower up 
to guard the vineyard, which may sound strange to us, but maybe you read the stories back in 2018 of a, a, a winery in Virginia that on one random Monday night lost their entire crop as someone came in under stealth and stole the whole harvest. He lost a year's worth uh, of income, a year's worth of labor in, in less than six hours as night fell. And when that particular story came out, it's interesting, the New Yorker wrote this whole article on, uh, to say, hey, just so you know, this isn't all that strange. And it reported how many thefts are reported annually in France concerning all, uh, t- a totality of vineyards being swept through in, in the cloak of night and their whole harvest being stolen. Well, this vintner has put up a tower to avoid such a fate. He's made a wine press, which signals what he hopes the end result will be. He's going to grow grapes, he's going to press them, and he will ultimately bottle wine. And you'll notice he selected choice vines. Of all the work he's done, he's not just going to plant anything, but he's going to pick the best. Uh, He's going to choose uh, 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 the right grapes for the right sorts of wines that he's desiring. If you think of the history of our own state, if you look at what happened in Napa Valley almost, what, 110 years ago, much of what is up there endures and has become famous because those who had their initial vision to plant there imported the choicest grafted French vines that they could afford and planted those vines so that the vintage that they would receive would be of quality. And that's what this landowner has done. And once planted, he took all the time and care to grow and train and prune these vines to get a good result. This is why it is a love song. He loves this vineyard. He has high hopes for what's coming from it. He has put his time and energy and affection into this place. It has been a labor of love. And after what would be about a three-year process, he came out for his first useful harvest in full anticipation. But what he got for all of his labor, for all of his care, for all of his careful choosing, wasn't good fruit. It wasn't usable fruit. It wasn't fruit that would issue forth into wine, but in the most wooden way in Hebrew, it was stink fruit. Uh, basically, you tasted it and realized this won't do, it won't produce good wine. Maybe you could produce vinegar from it, but it wasn't going to produce good wine. It really was sour grapes. It was so unappealing and unusable for the desired end. And here, in the middle of our song, as this one is singing the song of his beloved, the vintner himself takes the microphone from his friend and says, what else could I have done? I mean, tell me, where did I fail in my preparation for this vineyard in all that I expended, both financially uh, and emotionally and physically? Where did I go wrong? And why, when I went looking for good grapes, did I only find stinking sour grapes? And so he then turns to the hearers of the song and he says, you tell me, you judge Judah. And Jerusalem, tell me what you think. And much like in the parable that Nathan gives to David when he talks about this precious little lamb and a man who raises a lamb and how it's like a family member to him and a rich guy comes, you know, David is all set up for the punchline. He says, what should you do? You should kill that guy. Well, Judah and Jerusalem, we assume, 
have the same disposition. It's clear that the vine, the, uh, the owner of the vineyard has done everything humanly possible to get a good result. And so the judgment must lie on the vines, which sounds strange to us, but that is where our story takes us. It's not poor farming. It's not lack of care. It's not insufficient nutrients. There's something clearly wrong with the vine itself. It's an internal problem, not an external problem. So he says, what else can I do? Why continue wasting my land on something that will never give me good fruit? So he says, I'm going to break down the wall. I'm going to tear up the crops. I'm going to let it be overgrown with weeds and thorns and briars. I will keep the rain from falling upon it, which all of a sudden you get a hint for the first time, what kind of being owns this vineyard? Whoever it is has the ability to say to the rain, no more rain on this place, and it will actually obey him. And no sooner does he give this little hint that he finally gives the reveal in verse 7. We know who the owner is. He says, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines that he delighted in. He looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. So our love song turns from what seems to be a romantic ballad to a pretty charged indictment, a, a diss song of ancient record. The anger that Israel felt with and for the vintner, the judgment that they said should come upon the vines is now a judgment that they have directed upon themselves, proclaiming their own guilt because they are the vine and God has been the vine dresser. I mean, here the conclusion, it doesn't render in English quite as uh, punchy as it does in Hebrew. If you're reading those two words in Hebrew, you know, justice and bloodshed, righteousness and distress, you would see all the same consonants in both words, which is what makes Hebrew so fun to memorize, especially when you take time off. Uh, but what we have now as vowel pointers were weren't uh, 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 used then, but you could tell just by pronunciation what the word was. So if you can uh, forgive the usage, he says, I looked for mishpat, but I saw mispa. I looked for sedekah, and I saw sahaka. So I looked for justice, but bloodshed, righteousness, but cries. But in the original language, they're just, you know, a breath off, if you will. Instead of justice and righteousness, Isaiah tells us instead, they despised the Holy One of Israel. They despised their God. What does that look like, you think? I mean, what would you have to do to show that you despised God? Well, you can almost feel like this is a setup. I mean, what are the list of sins that would come to your mind if you would say that person is a God-hater, a God-despiser? Now, have your list and see how close you are. Isaiah is going to go on to tell us all the sins they committed in the next, uh, you know, uh, 24 verses or so. The first one is, he says, the rich started buying up land from plot to plot to plot to where there was no more room for the poor. There was no land ownership for those who were of lesser income. 
And he says the punishment for that's going to be, interestingly enough, you want to have all this land for yourself? You want to be alone in the land and have it all for yourself? Okay, then I will leave the land and you in the midst of it, but we'll all be left you desolate when your enemies come in. You'll be the only thing that's left. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, how greed does disempower grace. Greed ultimately dissolves into this alone emptiness. It's much like what C.S. Lewis showed us in the men's reading group, uh, you know, in The Great Divorce, that his vision of hell is all of these huge mansions, all on the farthest outskirts of hell, with singular people living all by themselves, alone, with no neighbors, saying, finally, I've got what I wanted. And there they are, separated, alone, and empty in all of their greed. And Lewis says, too bad you didn't know that you were in hell, (laughs) all the while thinking you were seeking heaven. So when we hear the term bloodshed in this text, we think immediately, well, they're murderers, but that's not the indictment that God's bringing. He's saying instead, you, uh, the, the word literally means an outpouring. He's saying you basically uh, uh, milked the poor for all they were worth. You just kept squeezing them and squeezing them and squeezing them, getting all of their labor and all of their goods. Uh, you abused them and you treated them poorly. You shed their blood in that way, and it is causing an outcry in your midst. I mean, in Israel, think of it, there is no greater wealth-building resource than land, and especially the fact that God had allotted it to the tribes. It was never supposed to be owned by one person. Everyone was supposed to have their peace. That's why every 50th year in the year of Jubilee, if you had lost your property from bad investment or your grandfather just wasn't good with money, it would come back to your family, so you would never be fully impoverished in the land of Israel. You would always have your piece of property. I mean, think of how important it is. It's there that you grow your food. It's your whole sustenance. It's where you have your place of employ. It's where you live. But if you lose that, notice all of a sudden... You're someone else's serf and their employee, their food maker, and you have very little to show for it at the end. And once these people had grown wealthy, now remember, this is how God knows they despised him. You got selfishly wealthy, you didn't care about the poor, and then he says, once wealthy, pleasure became your only priority, your biggest goal. You know, he says, you wake up early and say, where's the drink? And then you think, you know, what are we going to do this afternoon? Where's the party? Uh, what sounds like fun, you know, what, what's the next fun thing we can do? What's the next good thing we can find? What will feel good to me next? They have lots of land with which to raise lots of food and lots of wine, and they flaunt it without any regard for the less fortunate, without any higher priority than what will make them feel good next. And God says, well, that's how I know you hated me, you despised me, all you cared about was wealth and pleasure. And then we say, well, I am so thankful that that does not affect us and our culture at all. Bottom line, he says, you are wise in your own eyes. You think you know what's best so much that God does not get a say in what you're doing that you're so wise that God never gets veto power over your life. You decide what's right and wrong. You decide what's best for you. You decide what will make you happy. And he says, that's how I know. You were just living your life, making the decisions on what you felt was best without any regard 
to what God might have to say and what might be good for your neighbor. And God says, because of that, I'm uprooting the vines. And notice thorns and briars will take their place. He goes back to that Adamic image of what happens after the fall, this reality that what happens in the ground after the fall is thorns rise up. He says, that's what's going to be left because what you are doing shows that you're connected to that Adamic vine and the fruit that you bear looks a lot like your father's fruit. The problem is the vine and it's an Adamic problem. And no matter what God does for the vine, it cannot and will not and does not bear good fruit. He can't make the ground nutrient enough. He can't water it enough. He can't give it a nice enough setting or a better hill. There's nothing he can do with that particular vine because of what it's connected to that will change it. Because of the source that it's connected to, it always bears bad fruit. Even as Paul tells us, the works of the flesh, which really are the works of Adam, are clear Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, rivalry, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And so we have the fruitless vine, which of course does have fruit, it's just stinky fruit. But then we want to see next the fruitful vine, because this is a love song. At least it begins as a love song. And what's good about the fact that it begins as a love song is that the singer himself or the one that it's about, he doesn't change. He loves this vineyard and he's committed in some sense to it. And while the vineyard has shown its true colors, the Bible tells us that the vine, uh, the vintner will also show his true colors. We are told later in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 27, that a new song is going to be sung about a vineyard. It's this promise. And he says, in this time when we sing the song of the vineyard, it is going to be a joyful and pleasant vineyard. It's going to do what it was supposed to do. And God says, you know what? I'm going to water it and I'm going to guard it and I'm not going to let any harm come to it. It's going to flourish in such a way that the whole world is filled with its fruit. Wine for everyone. (laughs) But how is that possible? Well, it's clear if it's going to be possible, he needs a new vine. (laughs) And that's exactly what he gets, which is why when we open the New Testament and here in John chapter 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine. He's referring to this story. This is, he's not just picking images out of nowhere. He's saying, God wanted good fruit, and here I am. This is what it looks like to be a faithful vine, to be a righteous vine. And he shows us the fruit that God expected and desired and intended for Israel and even for Adam before her. And he establishes this new vine. Notice, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Again, going back to this parable, and that vine bears good fruit. I mean, if you want to know what God is looking for from Israel, or when God says, go and bear good fruit, it's simple. Just look at Jesus. 
I mean, that is the fruit that he's wanted and desired from humanity since his creation of them. That is what justice and righteousness look like, what our Savior looks like. Or another way to put it, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the fruit that God wants. Or as it is said elsewhere, love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable. It's never resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices instead in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And according to John 15, that is exactly what Christ is like. But it is also, according to John 15, what we are to be like, and it's through the vine of Jesus that all these particular blessings flow. If you want to know what God wants from your life, you can read those two passages and pretty much know the whole of it. And according to the scripture, it is through the vine of Christ is the only hope that we have of bearing this kind of fruit. He is the faithful vine, and therefore the fruitful vine You'll notice we see last than the fruitful vineyard. Christ says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Notice the certitude, you will bear much fruit. Dear Christian, you've got to notice God's goal in this world is still a fruitful vineyard. As he said in Isaiah 27, there's going to come a day where the fruit of the vines that he has planted are so profuse that they fill the entirety of the world. His desire for us is that we would bear much fruit so that our joy would be full. And while we can look back at Israel and shake our heads, we must look at ourselves and ask an even scarier question. I mean, if God is so frustrated for what he did for Israel and how much he cared for her and how little fruit she bore. I mean, how much more has God done for us? He has given us his beloved, who not only bore the fruit of the Father that he required, but he bore the curse that we deserved in our stead. He comes and does all that he's supposed to do, bears the fruit that we see that the Spirit bears, but also he bears the wrath that is incurred, even in Isaiah chapter 5, on behalf of his people. And over your whole life, therefore, lies this declaration that there is, therefore, now no condemnation, none. God is not angry with you anymore. There is no wrath hanging over your head. But not just that there is no condemnation. Christ didn't die just to give you a blank slate. He died and rose and ascended in order that you would bear much fruit. It's not just that there's no condemnation, but in the Spirit, He gives you the animation, literally the life that you need in order to bear the fruit that God desires. We are connected no longer to that same vine in the Adam of old, but the true vine, Christ himself, 
in whom there is life and power. And according to Paul, all that we need for life and godliness. Christ has given us a new covenant whereby he pours out his spirit on all flesh in order that we might have the very spirit of God dwelling in it within us in order to bear the fruit of that spirit in our lives. And he promises that if we abide in him by faith, we will bear much fruit. I mean, that really is all good news. So the question is, how's it going in the fruit-bearing department? What would your neighbors say? Your closest neighbors, you know, like your spouse or your siblings or your kids or your parents. Can you say without hesitation, I see all of this fruit in my life. It resembles Christ. Everywhere I turn, the aroma of Christ turns with me. Or is it easier perhaps to relate to the works of the flesh? I mean, I'm pretty good at envy. I don't even really have to try to muster it up. It just comes naturally. Far more natural than generosity, oddly enough. Impurity, of course, comes much more readily than self-control. Outbursts of anger are a lot easier to gin up than long-suffering patience for those who are irritable or uncharitable or slow to change. Well, the fruit of the Spirit is the fruit of the gospel. And while that may sound scary at one level, if you don't hear this, you're going to miss it. That's good news. These are not conditions for life in the Spirit. They are the fruit of the life that comes from the gospel. They're the results of the life in the Spirit that we are connected to in the vine. You see, all before Christ, this demand for fruit was a law that was unattainable, but it is not a demand anymore. It is the result. It is the result of putting our faith in Christ and keeping our trust and hope there. We don't look to fruit and then gain faith there. I dare say, I hope you don't look to fruit and gain faith there. If you do, maybe good on you. Or also, if you do, I'm afraid to be around you. Uh, we look to Jesus, who's the Savior of sinners. And as we love him, we find fruit there in him. You abide in him, and thus you will bear much fruit. You Sometimes we read, for instance, like you know, 1 Corinthians 13 or Galatians 5 as some sort of wooden virtue list, a set of commandments that you're to now keep. Be loving, be joyful, be generous. But they're not commandments They're descriptions of what is. This is the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit who does dwell in you. The Spirit does bear this kind of fruit. The vine that you're connected to does produce this sort of fruit. Here is the fruit that is seeded and nurtured and will be brought to full flower by the goodness of God. That is His promise in His Son. It is going to happen. The one who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Or as John says, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we do know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. 
But all of this comes with a warning that faith will take to heart. You can't make the warnings of Scripture disappear. Uh, They're there and they're real. You can't read Isaiah 5 and say, well, thank God that was so long ago and God doesn't care anymore about what we do or how we treat people or if obedience ever comes forth. If we don't care about fruit at all, if that's not a concern of yours, that's dangerous. If you simply want to do what you want, gain what you want, enjoy what you want, and trust that means that God baptizes all of your desires because it's what you want, and why wouldn't he be for you? And surely he agrees with you. That's troubling. I mean, if God never gets to veto your plans or your dreams, beware. Because there is a God in that situation, but it's you. I mean, if God never gets to overrule anything in your life, what kind of God is that or what sort of obedience is that? I mean, when is the last time you had to die to something you wanted because you knew God's Word said something different? And no matter how much you desired it, and no matter how good it might feel or how much pleasure it might bring or how much ease it might afford, you couldn't sacrifice what was right for what was easy. I mean, if the answer is never, uh, I can at least say you're doing it wrong. (laughs) Calvin put it this way, it is indeed the gift of God, our sanctification, our fruit. But the exhortation to fear is not uncalled for, lest our flesh through too great indulgence should root us out. He says, look, it is all of grace. God does it all from beginning to end. It really is the work of a spirit. All you are required to do is place your trust in Jesus. He says, but you know what? Don't let that discount the warnings because those things cause us to fear that should then drive us to faith, shake us out of our fleshly ways, say to us, I need to be careful and turn us back to Christ. God uses the warnings to spur us to accomplish that which He's ordained in us. God calls to us. If that, if, that is, if that which we are flirting with is not go and bear good fruit, I'm sorry, let me put it this way. God isn't saying to us this morning, congregation, go and bear good fruit. That's the result. But He's saying to you, congregation, Turn to my son, trust in him, abide in him, humble yourself before him, love him, and the result will be good fruit. No one who loves Jesus and believes his word will be fruitless, no one. And if you see yourself today a sinner, and if you look at your fruit and you see that it's failing, and if you wonder if you even care, and if this scares you a little bit, the one thing that the Bible would tell you to do, if you see yourself a great sinner who has not shown concern for God, then turn to Jesus again today. Believe in Him again today, the one who never says no to a sinner who comes to Him in faith, who always receives sinners gladly, who welcomes them warmly into His home and says to them, I love you. 
unconditionally. And before you bear any fruit and before you show me any obedience, you are mine. And as he does, love him. See in him kindness and gift. Hear his words of absolution over your life. You are forgiven. For the one who has been forgiven much, loves much. And wouldn't you know it, there is the fruit that God requires. We grow in fruit by fixing our eyes on the source, the lover and his beloved son, seeing who he has been for us, the faithful vine, seeing what he's already gained for us. He's already gained for us the fruit, the good works that we're to walk in. And as we look to him, know by faith that he will empower you to grow in grace. Even if your fruits, you know, one grape a year, uh, it's still proof that God is good and he's faithful. It's being connected to his son. And again, if you feel disconnected, then turn to him afresh because he never cast away any who come to him in faith. Let's pray.